0: Every year, the Texas Transportation Institute comes out with what they call an urban mobility study. It's a study of the nitty-gritty details of our everyday lives that many of you live in and out Monday through Friday. Where are the worst traffic jams, and how long do you spend stuck in traffic? Chicago's new claim to fame alongside Washington, D.C. is that if you're a resident of this city, you spend more time in traffic than anybody else in the country. The average American spends 34 hours in traffic jams. This is extra sitting in traffic beyond your normal routine, your normal getting there and coming home. If you live in Chicago or Washington, D.C., you spend 70 hours a year stuck in traffic which is double the national average. Statistics like this fascinate me. Where do we spend the time in our days? If you asked me where I spent my time, I would say it was with my children or around the dinner table or maybe in a class or in your office, but we spend a considerable amount of time getting from here to there or engaging in a variety of other activities. If you are blessed enough to have 40 hours a week of employment in this economy, you spend 200 hours a week at work. The average person spends 50 minutes a day getting to and from work. The average American, according to the Nielsen Company, will watch roughly 181 hours of television per month. The average American teenager will send 80 text messages a day. I know, right? (laughs) How many hours a week do we spend right here? You know, I have a timer up here that tells me how long I should have a conversation with you this morning. We've got about an hour in this sacred space, And maybe you came a little bit early to grab coffee, maybe you'll stick around for a Sunday school class, maybe the grand total of time that you spend on a Sunday morning in church is two hours. Hopefully some of us have a practice beyond this place of engaging God's word throughout the week, praying, reading scriptures, maybe we attend a Bible study or a small group, maybe The grand total amount of time that we have spent intentionally looking at something God-specific is five, seven, ten hours a week. So is it any wonder that many of us struggle to find God in our lives beyond this place? I've had so many conversations over the years and myself confess to struggling with finding God outside of church. Is God on the Eisenhower at seven o'clock in the morning in rush hour traffic? Is God in the grocery store on a Wednesday afternoon? Is he in the boardroom, the conference room, the classroom? Is he around the dinner table at the end of the day? I think we all know the answer to that is yes. But how do we find God in those places? Many of us seek for God and hope desperately that we can find him. But it's hard to make sense of where he is when we're stressed, we're tired, we're lonely, we're busy. And when we add up the hours we spend simply sitting in our car versus the hours we spend in dedicated worship, It makes sense that we struggle to find him. C.S. Lewis once noted this deep desire that we have to find God in a sermon he preached. He said, we want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. We want to connect with the divine every day is God in our ordinary places we offer a variety of classes here at the church maybe some of you have signed up for one or two on occasion something we call the equipping center which is an opportunity to dig deeper into uh, God's word and into some of the culture that surrounds our scriptures and Bill Sheehan and Victor Warren once led an equipping center class titled Golf's Sacred Journey, which was How do you find God on the golf course? Is God there when you're playing 18 holes? And the response to that course was tremendous. So many people signed up, so many people wanted to have that conversation, which betrays the desire that we all have to find God in our everyday places. Well, this morning, I want to walk with you through a narrative in Scripture where we find some information on how it is we can meet with God beyond this building, beyond simply sitting down and reading God's Word. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 28. You'll find it on the screen as well. I'm going to read for us verses 10 to 22. So, Once you get there on page 43, please follow along. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. When Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there was a bit of a scuffle between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Isaac was their father. And the story that precedes this goes that a meddlesome mother, an insecure son, and an aging father conjured up a plan to rob one of the brothers, Esau, of his birthright. Esau was set to inherit The blessing of the family from his father Isaac, and Jacob stole his brother's blessing. And understandably, Esau was angry. Rage would be a better term for it. And his mission from that point on was to take his brother's life. So Jacob had to flee. Jacob is on the run when we get to this point in the narrative. He is traipsing through the desert, making what will be a 550-mile trek to Haran. And a couple days into the journey, about 60 miles along the way, we reach this story. Jacob is tired. He is a fugitive. He is vulnerable. And for probably the first time in the history of his life, he is finding himself without the comfort of resources and protection, That his family would have offered him. And he comes to a point in the desert where it is time to take a rest, and the best thing that he can find is a big smooth stone to lay his weary head alongside. And Jacob falls asleep, completely vulnerable, sound asleep, and God then takes the initiative to meet with Jacob in that moment. And he presents Jacob with a dream. Jacob sees a stairway with angels ascending and descending, coming and going from heaven. Now much has been made of this story in theological circles, and you could study the meaning of Jacob's dream for years and perhaps never come to a definitive answer of what exactly this dream represented. My hope this morning is not to unpack the nitty-gritty details of the dream itself, but to talk about what encountering God in a seemingly ordinary space did for Jacob and his life of faith. Jacob saw the world differently because of his encounter with God. The word see that is used here in this text is actually a Hebrew word that's pronounced hene. And when it says in scripture that Jacob saw something, that he saw God, it's not the way that I saw my neighbor shoveling snow a couple days ago. The word see here implies a transformation of life, a reorientation of one's viewpoints, Seeing the world in a dramatically different way, Jacob had an encounter with God that changed the way he saw everything from that point forward. And what does Jacob say when he wakes up from his dream? He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than, Than the house of God. This is the gates of heaven. Walter Brueggemann is a fabulous theologian, and he talks a little bit about some of the details of Jacob's dream. And says one of the neat pieces in the dream is that the angels are both ascending and descending, they're coming and going from heaven, which shows that heaven and earth are in constant conversation that this is not a realm that is completely separate and without communication from the heavens, that heaven and earth are in synergy. They're in sync with each other. The New Testament shows us the beauty of Jesus and the reality that God's presence is here with us in this place every day through Jesus, the kingdom of God the presence of our Savior here and now at this place at this time. Jacob's reaction, as I said, he wakes up, and I don't know about you, but often if I wake up, especially if I've ever had to sleep on the floor, I'm a little bit stiff and groggy, and probably the first thought in my mind isn't, praise the Lord. Jacob knew right away, there was a sense of awe that was to infiltrate his day. Surely God was here. He had awe. He had a sense of awe when he woke up. And he had a sense of fear, the sort of fear that comes from being exposed. You know, at this point in Jacob's story, he's not exactly the most upstanding brother and son that a family could have. And just like Isaiah in chapter 6 of that book, when he meets God and the holiness of God crumbles him, Jacob is taken aback by God. There's fear in the moment of awe that he sees with God. And then Jacob decides to remember. If you look at the narrative, you see he sets up a pillar. He sets up a monument to remember the interaction and the conversation that he's having with God at that time. Bethel literally means house of God. By night, it was a smooth stone and a sandy spot in the desert. By day, it was an absolutely ordinary place that had been transformed into an altar to God. And throughout the history of Israel, you will see Bethel become a continuing place of worship and praise and adoration to God. An everyday moment turned holy and extraordinary. So how do we, can we, is it possible for us to have Jacob moments? Clearly, we're not going to go traipsing across the desert to find ours. But God met with Jacob in his every day, in his need, in his vulnerability, in his fugitive state. So how do we find God in our every day? There's actually an interesting little bit of biology I wanted to share with you this morning along these lines. There is a system in our brain that is probably best left for neurosurgeons to explain to you, but I'm going to give it a stab anyway. Let's see how we do. It's called the reticular activating system. It's called the RAS for short, and this is the system of our brains that allows us, if we're in a crowded room filled with mostly strangers, to hear the voice of a friend who may be calling from across the room. Even though there's different voices that we don't know closer, we can tune in to the voice of a friend. It's the system in our brain that helps us filter out the stimuli that fly at us every single day so that we can process and file what is important, the faces we recognize, the sounds we're familiar with, the conversations that trigger our memory. This is the part of your brain where if you were on the hunt for a new car, let's say you wanted to be adventuresome and were going to buy yourself a red Jeep Wrangler, And so as people often do, they research online and you would maybe go to a car lot and visit a few red Jeep Wranglers and all of a sudden you're noticing red Jeep Wranglers everywhere. You ever said that? I had no idea how many Jeep Wranglers were out there until I started looking for one. Did everybody suddenly go buy a red Jeep Wrangler or did your brain suddenly process red Jeep Wranglers as important? God has wired our brains to recognize and process and live with that which is familiar. God has designed our very heads and hearts to find him. We can actually train this part of our brain through prayer and meditation. We can begin to train our brain to find God. And Our vernacular often betrays us. Our brains are wired to find God everywhere, but yet we find ourselves often often in evangelical conversations talking about God showing up. I've said this myself. I've been in many conversations where people will talk about how they were praying, how they were worshiping singing or serving, and then in a very understandable sense of excitement, they say, and then God just showed up. We had a God moment. God was there. We talk about people, perhaps ourselves, finding Jesus, looking for God, as if Jesus was playing a cosmic game of hide-and-go-seek with us, and he's in a closet somewhere, and we have to find him. We use phraseology like God forsaken. I have a very dear friend who grew up in Chicago who now lives in a much warmer climate, and she often says to me that January in Chicago is a God forsaken tundra, is what she calls it. All kidding aside, is there ever such a thing as a God forsaken place? Do we ever really find God? Does God ever disappear and then show up? Or is the reality of our spiritual life that God is present all the time? And we just have to say, like Jacob, surely God is in this place, and I was not aware. How do we consistently tap into the presence of God in our everyday lives? The type A, fairly organized person in me wants to leave you this morning with a snappy little list of five things you could do when you leave this place to try to find God in your everyday life. But the reality is, there's one thing that we need to do. And it sounds so simple, but it is so phenomenally challenging at the same time. And it is simply this pay attention. Pay attention. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. We read that again in Isaiah. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 19, that very heavens declare the glory of God. The word glory in Hebrew is a huge word that represents weight and majesty and the volume of presence. Kavod is the word. It is also used to talk about the weight of armor. When soldiers go into battle, the entire earth is bending under the weight of God's glory. C.S. Lewis, in one of his most famous sermons, chose the title, The Weight of His Glory. God's presence is abundant. It is around us everywhere, beyond the beauty and the majesty of this place. It is everywhere around us. And God's presence can transform a trip to the grocery store into a sacred experience if we are simply able to pay attention. The British poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a bit called Aurora Lee. And she says this. Many of you probably have heard this quote before. She says, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. The kavod of God. Earth is crammed with heaven. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We just have to learn to pay attention to the people around us to the pace at which we operate our lives. We live at a time in human history where we have more time-saving devices at our fingertips than at any other time, than any other generation on this planet. And yet, we're more busy and stressed out and fast-paced than any other time in human history. How is it we have so much technology at our fingertips but have yet to figure out how to use that technology to help us carve out some space for God, to help us see God in the technology or help us rest a moment and pay attention? And don't worry, I'm not about to tell you to throw out the iPhone or the BlackBerry. I am as over-caffeinated and technology-addicted as the next person I fly through life checking emails at stoplights, I confess to that. But the reality is, if we slow ourselves down for a few minutes and pay attention, we can find the glory of God in every moment of every day. I have three children. My middle son is four years old. His name is Danny. He has the spiritual gift of dawdling. My mother-in-law once raised her eyebrow at me, and she said, that one's going to give you the gray hair, she said to me. He wears me out, and he is never one to listen to what I want him to do. And five days a week, we leave our home at 745 in the morning, and the marching orders are always the same grab your backpack, and get to the car. And somehow, every morning, from the back deck to the car, he manages to forget my instructions. And every morning I look out, and he is in the backyard, back by the fence, back by the tree. He's kicking snow. He's throwing snow. He's picking up sticks. He's playing in the sandbox. And every morning, I stand in the garage where my other two children are getting in the car, and I say, Danny, come on. I say to him, pay attention. Pay attention to me and my agenda and how fast we have to move to keep up. Meanwhile, he's in the backyard. The other day, he had picked up a chunk of ice. and He walked over to the car with it and he said, Mama, it sparkles in the sun. And he said, it's hard like a rock, but if I throw it, it shatters. He was trying to figure out why the rocks don't shatter, but the snowball does. And then he started badgering me with questions. Mom, is it going to snow again? Why does God make it snow? Why does it snow in Illinois and not California? And all the list of questions. Danny, pay attention. Get in the car. And I stopped as I was preparing for this this week, and I thought, wow. (laughs) He didn't say this to me, but in my mind, I thought, he is paying attention. It's me who's not paying attention. My kid found God in a snowball. Earth is crammed with heaven. This whole planet is filled with his glory. If only we would stop and look around and pay attention. Barbara Brown Taylor once said that earth is so thick with a divine possibility that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. Isn't that true? It is a wonder we can get anywhere. And I have the audacity to say, oh, it's no wonder I can't even get in my car in the morning. My goal in the morning should be to walk out my back door and to run into God, to find God's glory all around me. When we look at Jacob and the narrative of his story, the beauty, one of the beautiful pieces of this narrative is that he was transformed in an absolutely, utterly ordinary place, perhaps a place some folks might have said was God forsaken, a desert floor. He met with God and he was changed. And he was able to say that surely God is in this place and I did not know it. Surely God is here. Surely God is in traffic at 7 a.m. on Monday. He's in the grocery store. He's handling everything alongside us that we need to do to get ourselves to a place of rest at night. God is all around us. And we need to pay attention and shift our agendas and slow down and find him, if we dare, in the snowball. Surely he is in this place, and we all can become aware of it. Let's pray together. Lord, it is a gift and treasure to look all around us and see your beauty. And we confess that that is easier said than done, especially when the stress and the drama of everyday life creeps up on us, especially when we feel harried, life feels hectic, or we feel grief, or loss, or pain, or sorrow. But in all of those places, you are there. You are in that place. And all we have to do is wake up our lives and pay attention. So may we do that this week. May we find the altars all over your world, praising your glory and proclaiming your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.